This episode is brought to you by Northern Rural Supplies. Northern Rural Supplies proudly service the Kimberley and Pilbara regions, specialising in livestock sales, real estate, animal health and management, fencing, fertiliser, water and all other requirements. They stock your everyday needs to feed your dogs, cats, horses, chooks, camels and even goats. The whole team is based in Broome, so make sure you give them a call for all your agricultural and semi-rural needs. Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. According to the dictionary, adaptability is the quality of being able to adjust to new conditions. In today's episode, I sit down with one of the most adaptable people I have ever met, Sally Jolly. Sally's family has a long and rich history in the Pilbara pastoral industry, and it's no surprise that cattle and red dirt run through her veins. But just because she started her life on a Pilbara cattle station doesn't mean that's where she was going to stay. From the wide open spaces of the WA rangelands to an intensive horticultural farming region with many other steps in between, Sally has shown that her upbringing in the outback has set her up to adapt to any environment. To start our chat, I asked Sally about her family's history, and as you'll see, I got an answer I was most definitely not expecting. My granddad, um, his name is Jim Ringer Edwards, and uh, yeah, he was given that name because he he actually left school when he was twelve and went droving straight away. So he went to school in Perth. Don't know if that's right or not, actually, but Dad did. Um, <laughs> one of the Jim Edwards went to school in Perth, did, yeah. and that's all that counts. Um, and yeah, so he he went droving at twelve years old, and that's how that's where he started um, his his. Uh, namesake, I guess, for being a ringer. But yeah, he came from Queensland and he used to drove cattle from Queensland across uh, into Northern Territory, like through, we started in Queensland in Adele's Grove and through Queensland and um, and through Mataranka and uh, over into the Kimberley and, and the Pilbara. If this is your granddad, sorry, what decade are we talking? Uh, be after the war. So like fifties, yeah. So he would have done some before the war, and then after the war, he did the same as well. So wow, did he serve in the war? He did. Yeah, he was a POW actually at um, on the Burma Railway. Wow. And uh, there's a book that was written about him, and a couple of movies as well by Neville Shute, A Town Like Alice. How did I not know this? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Guys, it's called background research for the podcast episode. We're two minutes into recording and I've just got like the first curveball. Thanks, I, Sally. I like to have surprises for you. Yeah, I'm going to go find those now. That's so cool. Yeah. And what a man, like how different 
would that have been as an experience to be droving and you've got so much autonomy and freedom like it's like literally the most one extreme to the other like one freedom to then being a prisoner of war yes yeah so he was actually the one of the most famous bits in that book was based on one of his actions that came to be when he was over there the book was actually a chicken but in life in real life it was a cow and he'd stolen this cow and killed it to feed to feel the mates to feed his mates and um and yeah the the, the book it was different, but yeah, based on, on this story. Anyway, he got caught, um, with three or four of his other mates and they, um, were strung up in the trees and, and all of them died except for Grandad. And after, you know, three or four days, they could see that he was, you know, keeping surviving, but kept falling down or something. So they actually put wire through his hands and essentially nailed him to the tree. Um, but one of his comrades had, uh, kept him alive by sneaking him food. And they'd gouged out his eyes as well. And uh, what saved him with the eyesight at the end was maggots was cleaning, were cleaning out the eyes. So that got all the dead, dead stuff and bacteria and stuff. And yeah, and that was, that was one of the major stories in the book. This is not where I thought this podcast was going at all. Oh my goodness. That is horrific. And I didn't, wow. And yeah, wow. So yeah, he he survived and um, came back incredible man though to survive that and so he did he so he did have eyesight like yeah, when you say yep. they gouged out his eyes like where his eyes were still in his there, eyes though. were his eyes were still in there yeah but wow. um yeah they'd, they'd been scratched and and, and the, pulled out yeah the damage to his hands and gosh knows what else i mean to come back from war you know whether you've got physical i mean whether you do or don't have physical injuries the mental injuries like a and so he went back to driving after that. Yeah, so he went back um, back to the station and um, the Mount Edgar station up in the in the Pilbara, and yeah, that's 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 where my dad and and uh, all his siblings grew up. That is incredible. And yeah, sorry, I'm still processing this because that's just not where I thought this episode was going. <laughs> Do you need a bit of family history? You said to don't tell you everything, so you can no, be no, oh, <laughs> definitely. You said, though, he started droving at the age of 12 and taking cattle from Queensland to WA. So was Mount Edgar Station in your family at that stage or was it like your grandfather who kind of settled that himself? Uh, I'm not no, I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, that's probably a question for Dad. But, um, yeah, I think um, I think he bought that after after he was managing stations like Mataranka and, and things like that. So, yeah, that's where they that's where they ended up. And Mount Edgar isn't actually a pastoral lease anymore. It's been kind of converted to... A reserve or something. It's in the Pilbara. It is something people couldn't actually. I think that I know there's some kind of. I don't know if you can like visit it, but I know there's. You can visit it, and um, Dad and I visited there. Um, Annabelle's wedding actually. After oh, that, yeah. Um, we went through there and visited Dad's Dad's brother. Yeah, and we there was not much there. It's no, just a. But it's such beautiful country. I remember a couple of years ago, I had to do. For work, we had to fly over every pastoral lease in the Pilbara and Kimberley in a Cessna 210. Is that, I don't know if that's a thing. Anyway, not fun. And I remember flying over that bit and I was like, because I've always known like Yarry and Warragai and to be such beautiful country, but yeah, Mount Edgar as well. Yeah. Such a magical part of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was good for me because I'd actually never visited, um, dad's brother's grave there. And, um, yeah, he was put there. He do, he do, he committed suicide when he was 20, 22, 21. And, um, yeah, after some, like, horrific car crash and a few other bits and pieces. And, 
yeah, it was never spoken about in in the family, and I didn't actually know until I was well and truly left school. And um, I was actually at Graham Hutton's funeral when I when I found out. So he's a Perler in Broome, and he was my godfather. Oh, he was mentioned in episode two. Felicity, very big mentor of Felicity yeah. Brown. Episode two. Yeah. Wow, yeah. I listened to that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's listened to at least one of the podcasts. <laughs> More One's than better than none. <laughs> um, yeah. So he he was my godfather, um, and yeah, Dad was pretty devastated by that. So two significant people in his life, um, and he's always been very open ordinarily about those sorts of things, and especially since Graham committed suicide it was um it was a big thing in dad's life and he was pretty angry yeah fair enough i mean there's no standard way to respond to and there's no right or wrong way to yeah. respond to any of these things so i'm just still processing this because your grandfather like what an incredible i guess we'll, i'll talk about him so guys tomorrow i'm gonna go visit sally's papa bear and then i'm gonna hopefully convince him to record an episode two and baking cookies in the morning <laughs> and bringing beer i was thinking though i was like where so right now we're recording in like it's not that rural in queensland like not relative to you know spending time in the territory or the kimberley or something but it is a couple of hours to get to like a dan murphy's because i was like you know what i should bring him a six-pack of emu export you know, for, you know, for old times sake, you know, bring them the WA beer, mother's milk, you know. And then, I, but I just don't think in this little town, if I went to the pub, I don't think they'd have emu export. No, Kirk, Kirk's been buying it online when we first got over here. And then his mate visited um, a few weeks ago and bought like the big King Browns of it. And oh, they had really? it the other day. Oh, no. Does he have any left? Can I bring it? No. <laughs> I could have been like, here, Papa Bear, look what I bought for you. Yeah. No, anyway, worth a shot. Blackfish. Yeah. <laughs> He's a Queenslander now. He's a- <laughs> I know. What happens to the best of them? Not me though. Anyway, so let's go back to talking about your so, – so as you said, your grandfather came over to WA, um, had a station called Mount Edgar, and that's where your father grew up. And then you grew up on a station in WA as well, but not Mount Edgar. Where I guess tell me a bit about that part of your life and that story. Well, it was pretty much next door at Limestone actually is where I, where I, I, started, I started. It was, um, it was there – just near Mal- uh, Marble Bar. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we were there and then we moved to Malina, which is just south of Port Hedland. Um, and I was there until I was about five. Yeah. And so we've actually had – well, actually, no, Limestone haven't – Limestone's written one story for our website. Haven't been on the podcast yet. Yet, guys. And uh, Malina is now part of Batini Beef and that's Mark Batini episode – I want to say episode eight. Um, so it's such a small world – so, yeah, tell me about growing up on those stations and, and what it was like. Uh, well, it's, it's, it was great. Um, you had so much, so much freedom to, to go and do stuff. And, uh, and the life lessons that you learn early on is, is really important as well. Like you just, you'd go and play in the mud, you'd go and you'd ride your motorbike or, you know, I was three years old before I saw rain. Really? Yeah, like ever. I was three years old. Did you freak out? I did. I- and, and I had a little dog called Dodd. Um, because I couldn't say my G's. Um, and we pretty much shut ourselves together and ran inside, hid, hid under the bed. Then we got enough courage to come back out. And, uh, yeah, dad said that I'd, I was actually, um, going out to the hose and try and turn the tap off. <laughs> I love that. Was that, so do you reckon that was just like a regular shower? Was it like a big wet season storm? No, well, no, it was, it was a pretty big one because I remember, um, on the four wheeler, yeah, I was three and um, used to 
go flat out, of course, down this dip um, that went into went into the river, and um, obviously it rained, and and this little dip was one of the tributaries that ran into the river, and didn't know that water was in there. Anyway, I'd gone down, and there was a river basically going through my little dip. And uh, I turned into the barbed wire fence and nearly cut my head off, but I got stitches in my hand, and that one—that was it. But yeah, I got I didn't ride the bike for a bit after that. <laughs> All the adventures of bush kids, um, but yeah, still here to tell the tale and lesson learned, I'm sure, on everyone's behalf. So <laughs> Sally's nodding her head. <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't know if I believe what she's saying, actually. <laughs> We actually won. Um, we actually, Dad, because Dad had a prang that same year and broke his nose off the bike, and um, we won the Wim Creek um, Best Prangs Award for that year as a joint father and daughter <laughs> recipients. You know, some people think like, oh, I'm going to, you know, me and my dad are going to do the daddy-daughter dance at the school or something. Yeah, no, nah, nah, we'll crash bikes together yeah, instead. No, yeah, well, at least you're doing something together. So. <laughs> it probably would have been really funny for your parents to – um to see you respond that way to rain, but also like mixed mixed emotions for them because like you said you were three years old, first time you'd ever seen rain. So that obviously sounds like it hadn't rained for at least three years. Yeah. So, I mean, it had it had rained a little bit, um, but either we were in Headland or, or somewhere else on the property that, you know, it hadn't it hadn't really rained, um, or rained a little bit, but um, yeah, we were we were pretty much in in drought, um, which is part of the reason why we left, um, and at the time, actually, Gran and Grandad were living in Kingaroy in Queensland, um, and then they shifted to Gainda. Oh, I've been wondering where this connection comes from, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But okay, there we go. Um, and then Grandad had said to Dad that yeah, it's always rains in always rains in Queensland, um, and that's 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 the reason why we moved over to Queensland, and um, we actually struck a deal with a guy who um, who was in Gainda, um, and we swapped. We spot properties, so we we came to his place, and he went to Melina, and and that's yeah, we did a we did a swap instead of a buy and sell. I can't wait to talk to your dad about this, but and I, I guess we'll get more details from him. But how I just think that's like so bizarre. Like, hey, yeah, I'm going to swap you this, you know, several hundred thousand of acres, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of acres, and cattle and infrastructure, and and it's just a completely different environment, country type, production system, market. Like here I would be we're in a fruit bowl here, but also very much when it comes to livestock of domestic market over there, you pretty well I mean there was some you can go domestic, but it's a lot of export and yeah, vastly different. Very different. Yeah. It was very different. And I don't know the ins and outs of, of what happened there, but um oh, yeah. don't worry, I'll ask Papa about tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, it was it was interesting, and and we came over we came over to Queensland and small little house, and um, it was about a hundred years old the house over there, and we've built you know they've they've built that up really nicely now my dad and my brother, so um, you know they've made they've made a really good goal of it, even though we went from drought to drought, so it was drought and WA moved to Queensland, and it was another drought, so. <laughs> It was bad timing, but um, yeah, which which we had to go and make a few adjustments on that as well. So, um, which is why I've moved around quite a bit. Yes, as we're about to find out, um, this was just the first of many many moves in your life. So you get to have this 
incredible first couple of years of life out in a station being a free-range station kid. Excuse me just while I um, – this little spider, guys, has been harassing me since we started recording. It's like toying with my psyche. There we go. He's on the floor now. <laughs> it's been – just been watching him run across the table, run across the mixing board. Like, it was just in my glass of water. I was like, uh-uh, I'm not – no thanks. Anyway, so you, you – how old were you when you guys moved? Uh, five. Five, okay. Five. So I'd done, I'd actually done a first year of, um, uh, Port Hedland School of Air is where we all belong. Uh, <laughs> Port Hedland School of Air, we're really growing strong. <laughs> Still remember it. <laughs> Port Hedland School of the Air, it's not a very good song. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, it was, it was, um, yeah, so we did, we did, uh, the normal, um, what you did back in the day was over the two-way. Um, we did school on the two-way, so we had a schoolroom and a classroom, and um, I had a, oh, I suppose you call it a governess now. Um, uh, but yeah, it was a friend, friend of mum and dad's, and yeah, she used to help me do all the schoolwork. And um, she actually married us in the end. She became a celebrant, and she she was our governor, my governess when I was when I was a kid, and then um, married me and my husband. That's one way to do things. That's yeah. a pretty cool story there. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. And so you were telling me before we started recording that even though you guys came over to Queensland and I guess set up shop here or your business, your dad still ended up spending a fair bit of time in WA. It kind of became a bit of you can take the boy out of the Pilbara, but no, you really can't because he kept coming back. So He did. So my dad's actually, he's a pilot both helicopter and fixed wing. He moved away from the helicopter after he crashed it three times. It's probably not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think two two were mechanical faults and one one was his fault. Um, but, yeah, survived all three of them and then he went moved to fixed wing. And, yeah, he was mustering not only – yeah, he was mustering on, on our property when we were there – but then, yeah, he struck up a deal with um, several of the pastoralists over there, and and um, yeah, began contract mustering for for several different places. And because we were in that drought um, in Queensland, uh, he was doing a fly in, fly out type thing from from Gainda to to Port Hedland and all the surrounds, um, and uh, and trying to make that work. And in the end. In the end, we had to almost destock fully over here, uh, and we shifted back to WA, and we were there for probably two and a half years. And in that time, we'd we'd gone to two different places, um, and three different schools, but two different places. And yeah, he was flying up and down from Perth instead of Perth, Port Hedland, Brisbane, etc which made it a little bit easier. And then it finally did rain back over here um, and he still kept up that contracting while we were building up, um, So, which meant that he had to go again back from Brisbane or Gainda to Brisbane to Perth to Headland um, every two weeks. It just sounds exhausting listening to it. And and, and it would be the, the red eye, so it's midnight flights and, yeah, it would have been so exhausting. I don't, then, know, I don't know how he did it. Well, just exhausting to travel, but then to have to get in a plane and actually fly yourself. He's literally more time in the sky than he was on the ground. Oh, yeah, no thanks. Hard pass. <laughs> and where were you during all of this? So, well, like I said, I had three different schools there. Um, well, I was in transitioning between primary school and, and high school. So when we were in the West, I was in year seven and year eight. 
um, trying to work out where we we're going to go to high school. And in the end, I was um, boarding at Perth College. So in uh, year eight, started boarding there and we were living in Jinjin. It's only an hour away from Perth, uh, but that's that's where we'd made base because, again, Gran and Granddad were there. They moved from, yeah, from Gainda to, to back to WA. Um, so, yeah, we were, we were following Gran and Granddad around essentially. And, yeah, so I was in year eight and year nine and then and then moved back. Mum and Dad moved back to Queensland and I stayed in WA at Perth College because I was already settled. Uh, didn't want to didn't want to move again from you know having another seventh school. I think I was up to, um, so I didn't want to move again uh, and stayed and stayed there. And while Dad was still travelling uh, back to WA to do these stints up north, um, at least twice a year I would be going with him up to the stations up north, and I would either be in the plane with him and flying around and falling asleep basically because that's what I used to do as a kid <laughs> um, but yeah and spotting cows so that would be my job to spot to spot cows from the air and say there's a mob over here or a mob over there and and point him in the direction but you know he's been doing it for a million years so he was very good at spotting cows um, and yeah so that would be my job in the air uh, other than that I'd go on the ground if they had a spare buggy either to carry lunch or to tail the mob so I'd sit behind and and um, when the, the big mob came together and and just sit on the tail and make sure all the potties would move up and make sure that you know everyone was in there fed and watered. <laughs> um, so I was yeah 14, 13, 14, 15, 16. Uh, I did that every year, at least twice a year for my school holidays. Even though you spent your early years on a cattle station, they were very early years, and then you kind of grew up in Gainder. And then you go, and then you've got boarding school. Did you identify as a station kid? Like, was that somehow in your, in your veins or, you know, like with the family connections? Was that something that really you were drawn to? Or was it just like, Oh, cool. I'm going to go see dad do this stuff. And it was just, you know, one or the other. Uh, you know, it was, you know, I mean, once you, once you're born and you're raised in there, even if it's for a little bit of your life, you, it's ingrained for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can take, you can take the girl out of the pill bra. <laughs> <laughs> I always find this very interesting because I know some station kids that have no interest in stations at all and are so savvy on and like that honestly could tell you more about what's going on in their iPad than what a boar is or what a cow is. Like I, you sometimes I think you just think, oh, farm kid, station kid, you know, they grow up, they're going to grow up to the handiest person ever. And, but then there are some kids who just, I remember I gubbied for a kid once and she was the youngest of three. And she's like, when I grow up, she hated being on the station. She'd been there her whole life. And she's like, I want to be a triple threat when I grow up, <laughs> like a singer, dancer, actor yeah. and did not like going mustering or anything to do with the station. And I was like, cool. Like, so you just assume. So, so that would have been awesome for you on the school holidays but it must have been also very hard when school holidays were over and you had to go back down to Perth. Yeah look I I am very adaptable um I can sort of be in any situation and and adapt quite well so I loved boarding school I loved I loved being in that environment I hated living in the city so you have this bit of a juxtaposition but um I, I loved it and I loved being around the the you know, with the borders and, you know, where, where they've come from. And, you know, there's people from Kananara and Broome and all these people that, um, you wouldn't ordinarily meet going to, going to a normal school. And, you know, that sets you up for, 
for life, really, because you are, you know, all these people in all these different places. And it doesn't matter where you go, you can find someone who, who has got a connection to you. Um, even if you've never met them, you know, with us, you know, we've never met, but we know a lot of the same people. (laughs) Pretty much, pretty much. Um, and we went to the same uni. Um, and I worked for your cousin. So. There we go. I'm sure people are going to find this out sooner or later, guys. Sally's cousin is Annabelle Coffin, Yari Station. She hasn't done an episode yet. Don't worry, she will, but there's plenty of stories on our website from from her. So, because Annabelle's mum is your Papa Bear's sister. So, they are. It's a small world. You can't escape anyone. No, no. So, and and it does, like, it really does set you up to, um, to be able to travel anywhere and to, and to fit in anywhere. Um, you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter where you come from. You can always find find someone that you know that you can have a conversation with. And you know, being at boarding school, despite living in the city, is is, is all about making those connections. Um, and I really enjoyed enjoyed that. So while you were at school and getting to spend these holidays on the station, what did you want to? What was your thoughts and plans for when you could get out of school and get out of the city? Oh, I was always going to do something in cattle. It was, it was always going to be, it was always going to be something like that. And I really didn't know. Um, but when I did leave school, I'd, I'd applied for, um, ag science at, at UWA. Um, and yeah, I had no idea really, really, I had no idea, <laughs> but I knew it was going to be ag related. So it was no, there was no question on what I was going to study. Um, it was just where was it going to go from there? But you told me just a few moments ago before we started recording that your first job straight out of school was working in a citrus canker program, which I'll get you to explain to everyone what that is. So I get, yeah, explain what that is. And then I'm going to ask you like, what the hell, mate? So I left school and I knew that I didn't want to, I did not want to go straight into uni. I wanted to have my gap year. I wanted to go and do something ag related and. Uh, I actually came back to Queensland and and did a citrus canker, like a uh, being a biosecurity officer um, for the for the Department of Ag in Queensland, and we we went around to all the farms and uh, inspected all the all the citrus places for uh, the canker that was that was running rough um, through the time, and it's just like a little a, a blight or a spot on on the leaf, um, and can cause heaps of heaps of trouble that will then spread to the fruit. And yeah, we were on the hunt for that. So how do you go from spending your school holidays, you know, with your dad in the plane in a bull catcher in a buggy, whatever, hunting down like wild bulls or you know, and also just regular domesticated cattle in the Pilbara to being like, hmm, I'm going to go work with citrus because they're so fun and cuddly and they moo and they're so nothing like a cow. Well, um, uh, well, funny, funny thing is it came, it came from Brian Pastures because uh, dad's mates with the, um, with the manager there, which is also part of the DAF program. And, um, and he, he had, he had suggested that I go and try this because they were looking for people to do it. And I was actually going to be doing, um, studies on ruminants and, uh, with the rumen, um, they've got like a, a fistula, I think it's called, um, on the side of their, 
on the side of their Oh, guts. yeah, yeah, those things, yeah, like yeah. a little plug. Like yeah, a, like yeah, a little yeah. plug. Yeah. And uh, they had they the, the UWA farm. Yes, with the sheep, I had yeah, to do did. that yeah, once. Yeah, So they were doing that in cattle at Brian Pastures and that's what I was going to go on and um, and have some experience in. Uh, and then this and this this job came up, so... Yeah, like I said, I'm very adaptable. I'll just go with the flow and and see see what's see what's there and available. And yeah, I took it on board and uh, and that's that's what I did for a couple of months. So did citrus win you over? Were you like, this is it? This is what I've been looking for my whole life. I am going to be a citrus girl. Nope. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, can't say I'm not surprised because really, I like no offense to anybody who loves citrus that's listening, but I just like working in things I can cuddle. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Look, I love it. Um, I love. I I did I did enjoy the plant side of things. Um, you know, we've always had, you know, um, we've always had animals. We've always always done done the cow thing, and it and it was different. And it was you know, I mean, Gainda's the oldest town in Queensland and is got the big orange in it. So you how know, did I not know this? I've been there like four times in the last week. They just had the big orange festival. Oh, I knew about like the oranges, and I didn't think the big orange was that big, to be honest. So, well, and then I found big... there's like a door in it, and I was like, yeah. oh, okay. Um, yeah. So it's known for citrus. Like that's 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 Gainder is is I known for the oldest town in Queensland. Though. Yeah. Yep. That's a bit hectic. Mm-hmm. Okay. So citrus didn't win you over. Did you come back to cattle? Uh what did I do? Uh, I went back to. Um, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. I went. I went to. I went to do a, a stint. Um, I went and did a, st- a season at Munda. So Munda is short for Munda Bulangana. I know. I was about to. I was like, "Can you please say that?" Because I don't want to. <laughs> so Munda Munda Bulangana is uh, just south of um, Port Hedland, and uh, it was one of Dad's contracting places where he went and did his mustering, and I actually got a job there for for the season two thousand and two, I think. And uh, I spent a season there chasing cows and learnt a lot from the manager that was there, David Barton, um, and he was very, very, very patient and very good uh, with with people and could teach a lot. Uh, so I had Dad in the sky and Bardo on the ground uh, teaching you a lot about low stress stock, like low stress livestock handling. Um, and you know they were doing that before it became a thing, uh, and and the yeah, I had my experience um, as a full time dealeroo on on Monday. What was that like? If your previous experiences had been those school holidays with your dad, um, obviously it's it's always different when you get to go somewhere and you're like the guest or like a free helper and stuff. You know you get treated a bit different. Um, even if you're expected to work, you still get a bit different. And now you're you've got a proper paid position in the camp but like you just said your dad's still there so you kind of you're like yeah I'm grown up now I'm strong independent woman working in the camp but then dad's still like on the other end of the two-way yeah but you know and and it was really great working with dad like I I like he's one of those people that um will will be able to teach you um teach you things even though he was probably very very scary to a lot of people uh there was one story that uh, he threw spanners outside the window because of the plane because somebody wasn't listening to him on the ground <laughs> i hope he had good aim or bad, or bad aim, aim yeah. yeah um no he had pretty good aim and meant to land not on him obviously <laughs> um but yeah the, the he he was pretty scary and there's a lot of people that have got stories about um about you know how he 
how he spoke and how he how he uh but he always had a beer afterwards, so <laughs> um at this point guys I haven't actually met Sal's dad. <laughs> I'm gonna go see him tomorrow. Have met Sal's auntie though. And if you're listening, I spent a good like eight years being terrified of her. It's only recently I've overcome that fear. So now I'm like, oh god, this is a direct sibling, full blood. One <laughs> of my big girl pants tomorrow. I want to ask you a bit more about this. I think you said his name was Bardo, David Barton. Is mm-hmm. that? I love you. you. Only said it like three minutes ago. I'm like, what was his name? Because I he was before my time in the Pilbara, so I've never actually had the the pleasure of meeting him. But you spoke very highly of him before we started recording and just now. So tell me a bit about him and what I guess suppose that was your first boss out of what well, sites from your citrus canker thing, but your first boss in the industry and out of school and that's a pretty influential time in your life. Yeah, I mean, Bardo was he was a really good leader in that um he'd be he'd be so patient and and um and teach you things uh in a way that that wouldn't come across as you know, it didn't matter that you were female. It didn't matter who you were, who I was. It probably did actually, because he was frightened of dad too. But <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he he did he did spend the time um to teach you about the the, the how you should lead a mob, or how you should uh gather like how you should do weaning properly and and train them and put that time into your keepers so that. They will work for you in the future so that you don't get these feral cattle. So you don't get the, the accidents that might happen and reduce the risk. Um, and he would, pre- he would not prevent it, but he would put things into place that would help you understand cattle and help you work in the yard safely and, and help you, uh, understand how a herd works. Uh, and where you should be in certain places, you know. The one of the one of the things that I do remember is is a lot of mesquite country um, in Munda and Marty, Marty in particular. And we were going through like the mesquite country, and we had to go through over the river. And you know, it was you know early in the season, but it was my second time round. <laughs> and uh, uh, he put me in the lead to go across the river. And that is quite frightening because you're on a two wheel motorbike. Um, you may or may not get bogged. And if you get bogged, then you've got a, a thousand. Lion King moment is about to happen. Yeah, you've got a thousand head of cattle behind you. So he, he had given, it's a big responsibility. And I remember as, or would have been 20 at the time, 19 probably. And, um, he put me in that position and he's on that radio and he's talking you through it. And he's got, you know, it's fine. It's fine. You go this way and he can see, he can see where you are. He's on, he's on the outside. Like he could have been doing that job, but he gives you that opportunity to step up and, and take that responsibility. Like it, it sounds like a, you know, for people who don't know, but it is one of the, the biggest things that where things can go wrong. It no, it sounds, inc- I'm just, I don't know if I'm just too old and bitter these days, but I'm just so used to hearing stories of someone just like, uh, I mean, it's, and it's not as common as I'm making it sound, but you know, someone like yelling at you over the two way in a situation like that, or, you know, in these high pressure, like pressure cooker situations, people can be like, you know, micromanage or, you know, be careful, don't blow them up, keep going. What, you know, some people really just need to put the radio down, but it just, he sounds amazing that he was there, like encouraging you and keeping you calm and being calm himself. And absolutely. So, I mean, he, he did like all of us lose your nana every now and then, but, uh, at the end of the day, that was one thing that really stuck, like sticks in my mind. And I remember like it was hectic 
when you get to the other side as well because then you can't see anything because of the mesquite. So you've gone from a nice open river and then you go straight into mesquite and you've got to go up steep hills and you, and you cannot see and you're stuck on the on the lead and you're trying to move and manipulate and and move like in conjunction to where the head's going. And um, I just remember you just had to drive at the end. You had to ride your bike and, and just trust that they were coming behind you because you can't see. And, um, yeah, so a lot of communication. So communication is a huge thing in my job at the moment um, and I reckon that's one of the biggest things that I learnt from him is that communication, even if you can't see, you have got the intuition or uh, the feel of what what might be happening to be able to guide someone to get to where they need to be. Sounds like you could be one of those, um, I know this is so daggy, but sometimes like on Grey's Anatomy or whatever, like they can't get the sur- surgeon in or whatever and say so like there'll be someone on a TV screen like talking them through the surgery. I'm like, that's just, when you were saying that, that's what that reminded me of. And I was like, oh yeah, you could walk someone through, you could video conference someone tomorrow and guide them across the river. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Oh look, I'm so out of practice on that. I, that's that's yeah. I haven't I haven't been on on stations for a long time now. But that's that's one thing which can be applied anywhere. You don't have to be on a station. You can you can be doing whatever in life. But communication is it's one of those things where um, is so important in whatever that whatever you're doing in life. Now, as we alluded to earlier, you have moved around a fair bit in your life, um, starting from a young child and throughout your teens, and then. 20s and 30s. Um, actually, no, maybe not your 30s. We'll find out soon where you've been. I think you've actually been pretty stable. But you, you did a couple of seasons at Marty in between going to uni and uh, having a few other jobs. And so rather than go through, you know, do my best, who used to present This Is Your Life? Was it Ray Martin or Might have been. someone yeah, like that? Or Bert Newton or I don't know. Rather than me, yeah, do my best Ray Martin impersonation of, you know, This Is Your Life and we'll go through every moment. I want to get to the part where, so obviously you go to uni, you have a few other jobs in ag, um, but at one point after, okay, well, actually, we'll pause for one second because, I don't know, no one's written in to complain to me about this yet, so I'm just going to keep rolling with it. Um, I need to know how you and Loverboy met. Just give me the story. Uh, we actually met in high school when we were in year 10 and we dated for about five months and then um, and then obviously went separate ways, but then we met up again later when I was at uni and um yeah things just fell into place I guess and yeah that's that's and he's from Del Wollinu and uh I was still studying ag science at uni um and Del Wollinu is just north of Perth it's about three hours and wheat basically it's the wheat shire uh and there basically it's wheat <laughs> well, wheat canola there's a few like, you want to say wheat one more time <laughs> wheat to love to see you again oh god it's the slogan have you not seen it surely you've given it well no you, that's a town you pass through every time yeah. heading up north but wheat yeah wheat oh, love to see you god. again how did i miss that because oh. it's behind you as you drive out <laughs> never look back never look back okay so so it's the wheat shire and um a lot of wheat is grown is grown there but also canola chickpeas and there's a few other things and and sheep were there when i was there but rapidly going out of sheep as well um but yeah that's where i that's where he was from and i and i quickly moved out of perth as fast as i could when i left uni i was still studying actually when i'd moved to moved to Del Wollinu, um when i realized that you know he's the one 
somehow. <laughs> um, and yeah, and I shifted up there and I actually got a job in admin, uh, at, at Landmark. It was Landmark back then. Uh, and, and, uh, I was in that job for about three months and the agronomist job came up. I was like, Oh yeah, what's an agronomist? I'll look that up. <laughs> How do you go through a uni, an ag science uni degree and not know what an agronomist was? That was like what I picked in my first week in my degree. I chose animal stuff. I was all, always going to do something with animals in ag related. So I did, I did animal science. I did animal welfare. I did all of those, all of those sorts of things and the occasional, you know, the occasional because I had to biology 101, you know. <laughs> And so I'm guessing then that you became an agronomist. So I, I applied for that job and um, I anticipated the questions that I might have been asked and I put some study into into what that was and, you know, unbeknown to everybody, I had no 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 idea what the what difference. What is a crop? Pretty much. I had no idea the difference between a cedar and a header. No idea. Anyway, uh, for people nailed. listening that may also not know, because we don't have a lot of city listeners, cedar. A cedar is a plant, like so. You, so you plant whatever it is. Puts you're the seed into the puts ground. The, the big tractor the that puts the seed in the ground, and a header takes it off. Harvest, harvest the seed when it's all grown. Yeah, <laughs> you never know. Like there would be. I, my mum listens to this podcast. I don't know if she could tell you what those were. So hi, yeah. mum. Anyway, confession. I had no idea, but I had to. I had this in- interview, and I nailed it. Because I just anticipated the question, I asked I asked everybody in the in the whoever I could to to try and work out what's going on now. What would I be doing if I was you know in this position right now, and and how would I how would I deal with that? And and then and then it just came down to you know personality and and the the drive and the and the want to work and and how you come across and you know the work ethic that dad. Yeah, and Dave Barton and Bardo that had instilled in me, um, for for that kind of job. So even though I had no idea, um, adaptable, be adaptable and try and work it out. And um, yeah, so I got that job, and I was there for almost five years, being an agronomist for for Landmark. Gone to the dark side and playing with plants. I know, I trying to grow a crop. Yeah. What was wheat again? Yeah, <laughs> like let's just say that one more time. What was that plant that you? So that chickpeas. Was, what? Yeah. What? Well, so you, you did that for a while, and I know I, I want to jump to the part where, basically, so you, after moving around a lot, you have this like stable life. You've got this job, um, five years as an agronomist, and then, and you're with the one as you called him before, and then you know, first comes love, then marriage, then babies. You know, yes, then babies. And then it comes packing all of them up into a caravan and travelling around the country. So that was one thing that uh, Kirk, my husband, really wanted to do, uh, and obviously me as well. But Kirk is born in Dalwellyn, literally born there, and never been anywhere else. And he was he was itching to get out and and see see Australia. And uh, we both hadn't, you know, he'd gone to America and and. Uh, Pretty much it, and I'd I'd gone to the UK, I'd gone to South Africa, uh, and you know Bali, which all of us do um, over there. But you know we we'd we'd much rather go and see see what Australia had to offer. And so once I'd had both my kids, um, we we packed up, 
We sold everything. Uh, we had a boat, we had a jet ski, and we just sold everything and bought a caravan and uh, sold, like, literally everything, knives, forks, plates, everything, and and got as much money as we could together and, yeah, decided to. We actually bought a camper trailer first. Stupid. I think we lasted eight weeks. We got to Darwin and bought a caravan. <laughs> I'm glad you told me that because, you know, I've, I've genuinely been considering buying a camper trailer for a while because I'm so sick of packing stuff in and out of my car. But then I'm like, I am also know that I'm so lazy that I won't want to, like, pop it up all the time. No, like- get get a little caravan. Do it. I, I cannot recommend that enough. And you can go anywhere you like uh, with, with, with your caravan. Like, we've got a huge caravan. Like, it's pretty big. And... And it, it went everywhere. Like it went to Adele's Grove. It went to Yarry. <laughs> it went to all those places. Uh, and it didn't do the, um, it didn't do the Cape trip. I was going to say, did it make it up the Gib? <laughs> no, we didn't do the Gib, <laughs> but we did, we went, um, we had the camper trailer when we did the Gib. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we didn't miss that when we were on our travels. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't, it wasn't able to do the, the old telly. Telegraph track up at the Cape in Queensland here, but uh, we camped in in a tent with with the two girls uh, for ten days, and yeah, yeah, that was that was the best part. Did you have a plan for this trip, or were you just going to no. travel indefinitely? Yes, <laughs> I love it. You're just like, nah, yep, just traveling indefinitely. So how? I, I, I suppose this is something I really want to dig into because this. How long ago would this have been? That would have. This is about. Five, five years ago we stopped. So 2016. So maybe it was about 2014 to 2016. Yeah, 20, 2015 to 2017. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. that's, that's fairly recent. And we are in this, uh, I mean, this has come up in a few episodes before, but we are in this time and space where cultural expectations and societal pressures are kind of, they're still very much there, but then they're, kind of being challenged, um, but it's very the norm to, you know, go to uni, get married, have your kids, have a job, especially I think if you're in agriculture in rural Australia, like, you know, settle down on your farm or, you know, have you've got a good stable job as an agronomist, why would you want to chuckle that in and have a life of instability? And even though you've only done this very recently, I think it was still probably would have been a bit of a head scratcher for a lot of people being like, why are they, you know, doing it all now? Um and I think I think a lot to do with uh, our kids being young. So Mac was only thirteen or fourteen months when we left, so she was still a baby, and Summer was three. Uh, and having 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 that experience before they you know had to go to school and and you know having them have that experience as well was part of it. Uh, but it also comes back to the adaptability. Like uh, even though I said Kirk's been in Dally all his life. You know, he wanted to, he wanted, he's a very adaptable guy as well, uh, which is probably why we get along so well. And I should hope so <laughs> if you're married. Oh, you know. Actually, you'd, you'd be surprised, but yeah. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. So being adaptable, I know I keep saying it, but that adaptability to whatever situation that you're in, um, can help you in whatever situation you're in. How do you? Like, is it something you're born with, do you think, or can you be taught? Because for some people, like, I know there's certain people that need, 
you know, they thrive, and I'm going to say we, because sometimes I do thrive off routine and stability and you've got your home and, you know, because I've done a lot of traveling as well and I kind of am like the opposite, like I love to travel and stuff, but then sometimes it gets exhausting and you just want to stay in the same place for five minutes and kind of unpack your suitcase. And so, but I always wonder, like, is it a nature versus nurture thing? You know, can you be taught to be adaptable or is it just something you're born with? And and there's so much more. You say the word adaptable, it's a it's one simple word, but there's a lot going on behind that word. Uh, I suppose. I mean, I have a look at my youngest and how she was as a baby uh, and she was stuck on my hip the entire time for the entire time. She was stuck on my hip, you know, didn't even go, didn't even go to her dad. And it took about three months on the road and the oldest one, Summer's very butterfly, you know, she'll go anywhere, she'll love anybody, even even way back then. And and I think if I hadn't had that opportunity to let her go and meet all these people, you'd be stuck in your own home, you've got this kid on your hip, you've got nowhere to go, you're stuck in a routine, you're you're always doing the same thing. And that kid will then always be like that. But if you give them the opportunity to, you know, you give them a little push to get them out and and see the world and, you know, her sister helped that as well with her. But now, you know, they're both very independent and I don't think that – I think she would be a very different kid had we not um, – God, the kids. God, they make a racket. Is that a, is that a pressure pump as well? Though? Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, this is a part of living in the country. Pressure pump. Uh, I see, and that's normal to me because everywhere that I've gone's always had a pressure pump. I actually didn't know I what it was until notice. like mid last year. Like I, I had, and then like one place I was staying at had it, and now we're not the place I'm staying at now. I hear it gone. I'm like, oh, that's a pressure pump, and I feel really small. <laughs> and because we we don't have scheme water or anything here, we're all rainwater. Um, so it, the whole house is run on, on rainwater and obviously we need a pump for that. So Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Back to your adaptability. <laughs> I'm just I'm just wondering yeah, I I just don't want to oversimplify it. Like, oh you just gotta be adaptable, but there's I'm just trying to figure out how are you what is it about you as a person and your psyche and your I don't know if it's to do with like your beliefs or your values or whatever that you can just kinda like you said, go with the flow and you know, I know that um when I came out of uni and all I wanted to do was work with cattle and if I had had no other option to, which for a while I didn't have no other option and had to go work with citrus, I would have cracked it. I would have been like, no, life's not going to plan. This isn't, I'm, I don't want to work with, you know, and so some, whereas then there's, a, you can have that response to it and other people were like, cool, I'm going to say, I mean, I'm very different now. Now I'm like, oh yeah, cool. I'll go like, well, we'll get to this in a little bit. I was like, I'm going to go see a blueberry farm and oh, maybe I could work at a blueberry farm. And like, But back then, so I'm just wondering what, has made you with all these different changes you've been through and we didn't cover this before but um so aside from working on stations and then the citrus canker thing as an agronomist you also worked uh with sheep um you worked in a meat like meat packing like you've done so many different things made coffees yeah made coffees um with the sheep she was collecting and packaging semen just saying um sheep wanker yeah (laughs) god (laughs) it's after five o'clock you can say that um but, you know, you've done all these different things. So how – I'm just wondering, like, how do you get to be so, like, 
that it doesn't bother you. Oh, I think I think it might come down to experience as well. But now that you say that, then you just go from one thing to another, and 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 then you find you find a, a passion or something. But um, oh God, I don't know. I probably should have given you a heads up before I, I'm just thinking on the spot here. Well, no, I think I think you can you can learn adaptability through experience, but then you've got some people who are naturally born to 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 do whatever you whatever they desire as well. So they can you know go from you know a little a spot in downtown Dalwallanu to downtown Mandubra and and just change in an instant. Um, and be be whatever you have to be. Yeah, you know, no, I don't. That was no, really bad. <laughs> no, no, no. And I think when you say uh, you can learn through experience, that's yeah. Because like what you're describing, I'm sort of recognizing myself, and at the same time asking you the hard questions. I'm trying to think of some answers myself, and I, I think though, like you said, you learn to the more you do stuff, the less scary it becomes. And the more, I think the more tolerant you become, the more accepting you become, the more you just, I've been actually really surprised on my travels. Like in these past 12 months, I've known that I've spent like the last 10 years traveling and met a lot of people all around the world. And every now and then when I meet someone that is a little more conservative or racist or whatever, like just hasn't really seen as, you know, a bit more sheltered. Um, I always get really surprised. I'm like, oh, is that still a thing? Or are there still people out there like that? Um, but maybe it's because like, like you said, with your daughter, like with your parents giving you the opportunity, it ne- wasn't necessarily your choice until you were, you know, out of school, but your whole childhood was, well, you're coming here, you're doing that, you're, you know, and you just that shifting around and you just had all these experiences. And I guess maybe the fear kind of melted away. Perhaps, perhaps. So I'd, I'd traveled across Australia seven times before I was, 10 we'd uh we'd traveled to and from to and from yeah Queensland to WA so you know jumping in in a in a car and going around in a caravan is probably not a big deal because I'd you know I'd done it as a kid uh and you know it was not as glamorous as what we did it you know we literally packed up our life in a float and drove in 4 days from Brisbane to to WA, like, and it's just drive. Like yeah. Dad's just nah, we're going. And you know, Dad, there's the big something, the big yeah, no, the Nullarbor. Yeah, there's the Great Ocean Road, the, the Great Australian Bight. No. Yeah, no, nah, we didn't. We didn't stop. It was dark when we were. And I remember. I remember it was actually, it was so raining one day that we could not see, and we were driving across the Nullarbor in the dark, and we had to pull over. Uh, and yeah, it was. I remember that. I think I was about seven or eight. That was, I think that was maybe the first, second time I'd done it. And yeah, I've actually been quite frightened. But you know, it's different traveling with kids now because back then we didn't have, we didn't, we didn't have to have car seats or anything. We could run wild. So, you know, the car was set up as a, like a playpen in the back and you could just, you know, sleep or sit in the back and you, you don't, you're not strapped in all the time so that's where a bit of freedom might have come from but you know you sit I could you just you, you didn't have to have car seats back then so we'd, you'd run wild in the back of the station wagon <laughs> oh, and you could go you could go hours and hours and hours without having to stop you know stretch your legs or whatever it was kids are running back no worries yeah no I think the more I think about it I think it is probably all those experiences you had which then just became the norm to you. I love, I'm like, uh, this is Dr. Phil. I mean, Dr. <laughs> Steph, uh, 
interrupting this episode. I'm just wondering if it's all the experiences you had and then that just became normal and then that just became normal. It's just, it's not like, you know, you're not, especially packing up and moving around the country. Cause you know, you say, Oh, I'm going to pack up. We're going to move around the country. We're going to have to keep going to new places, unpacking, packing, meet new people, do all that stuff. But all that stuff you'd done before, just not with in a caravan with kids, but the whole starting over, meeting new people, you know, that was the stuff you could all already do. So I guess that, yeah, guess that, that would be the thing that would be scary for a lot of people. Like, oh, we have to go meet people now and talk to people when leaving our friends behind. And oh my god, I'm like that now. Maybe that maybe it's reversed. Yeah. <laughs> maybe my timeline's reversed. It's like, no, nah, I'm I'm done. I'm I'm sick of seeing people. I'm done. Oh, I can't <laughs> believe I made it till ten o'clock on Friday night. And like, it was not you know meet some people, but I'm like. Oh, I don't want to meet anyone. I just want to go home and like sit by the fire in tracksuit pants. But I did meet you last week. So there we go. Um, now I will, I know I've been taking up a lot of your time and it is getting darker and colder. So I think continuing on this trail of adaptability is bringing us to where we are today. And that is in Mundubra, which is in Queensland. And you work on a giant blueberry farm so talk about adaptability you know growing up in the bush in the pilbara beef cattle you know i want to be beef 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 and then let's do some sheep let's do some meat let's do some coffee making let's do let's go everywhere let's do some agronomy and now of all the places that you thought you'd end up you're running a blueberry farm yeah so oh god how this happened um we had travelled around Australia. We had we'd come to sort of a yeah. We're probably running out of money. Probably should probably should uh, you know find a job. You know, um, oh, in between that, Kirk went back to to Dali and did some harvesting. So so we had an income. So we didn't see each other for about three months um, during that time. Uh, and you know, so anyway, it came to a came to a time where we we're like, okay, well. Who's going to get a job? And I'm like, well, I'm sick of being at home. Like, I was, I was fortunate enough to be able to stay at home with my kids, um, even before going in the caravan. So I was pretty keen to to get back to work. Um, and you know, we had no idea. We really had no idea what we were going to do. It was literally cover your eyes, have a look at you know all the jobs that might suit us. Kirk's a heavy diesel mechanic. He was the uh, service manager for, for Jolly and Sons, their business in Dawalanyu and John Deere dealership and everything. So he wasn't really keen to go back to the mechanical side. And I had started looking for, for jobs in agronomy. Um, and we looked in, you know, all over and we were actually on the Tipperary. We were fishing at Mount Elizabeth uh, or Elizabeth Down, sorry. And we're on the Daly River. And that's where I came across this ad for the blueberries um, and I started talking with people in town, friends, old friends that I'd grown up with when I was over here. It's like, oh, I didn't even know there was that. What I don't even, it was, where's the blueberry farm in, in Mundubra? I've never seen it. I don't know how you could not see it. It's a hundred hectares of just blueberries and it's all under nets. So it's one of the biggest ones in, in Australia under a single net. Um and oh, I had no idea. So even when I visited and came for the interview, I I had no idea. I'd never seen a blueberry bush in my life. So like, yeah, blueberries grow on punnets, right? From Woolies. Like, <laughs> yeah, I can work with those. But you know, the fundamentals of growing a plant is essentially the same. So even if I um, had 
had experience in growing annuals uh, that you, know, you had to replenish every year. So you have to seed and harvest a, a wheat crop, a canola crop every year. It's not year on year. Blueberries, they're there, you know, for up to seven years. Uh, we're hoping for 10, you know, it could for, for, for commercial reasons, um, uh, to be commercially viable, I should say. And, you know, I had, I just had no idea. You know, I've got no idea. But at the end of the day, the fundamentals of growing plants are the same. You've got the same critical points of influence, the same uh, nutrition for when that happens, you know, whether it's in the uh, reproductive stage or when it's growing and and flushing with all its green vegetation. It's fundamentally the same, but at the end of the day, there's so much to learn. And it wasn't just like – it wasn't an agronomy job and it was something that I, I had never seen myself – uh, doing as a, as a farm manager, uh, or an assistant farm manager. I was not, I was not, uh, in that headspace, but yeah, you know, I was intrigued by it. And to be fair, it was close to dad and Johnny and having them miss out on the kids first few years of life. You know, they'd only see them once or twice a year, um, whenever they visited or if we'd come over here, it's literally just once or twice a year. And so I was like, oh, yeah, right. So it was a race between Kirk and I <laughs> on to see who would, who would get the best deal out of a job, you know, and we'd both applied for certain things. And, and, um, I had applied for four or five other agronomy jobs, uh, whether it was in beans or I think it was a bean job and a, um, a peanut one and maybe a sorghum one, cotton one somewhere. And I'd actually gotten them all. And I was able, oh, chili one. That was the other one. Um, and yeah, so I was, I was fortunate enough to be able to choose, you know, which one had the best deal, I guess, in the end. And, and, uh, yeah, it came to this one. And it, it's about lifestyle as well. Being so close to dad, we're not living in town. We live on the farm. Uh, I can literally, I'm seeing, looking over my shoulder now and I can see, I can see the blueberries. Uh, and you know, that, that kind of lifestyle really suits us. Uh, we're surrounded by rivers. We're surrounded by places to go fishing. We're so much to do where we are. Uh, and anyway, that's how we <laughs> literally was fishing in the Daly River. <laughs> that's how I ended up on at Blueberries. <laughs> I want to, you know, I don't think anybody listening to this podcast thought they'd ever get a lesson on blueberries. But let's be honest, if I came across a podcast that I knew was just on blueberries, I probably wouldn't listen. But because of you, I came out to the blueberry farm the other day, had the tour, and blueberries are super fascinating. So I want to I want you to tell our listeners a bit about them. And we also discovered that there's actually a bit in common between blueberries and cows, <laughs> which I thought was – I was pretty chuffed with that. Yeah, I guess you never think – you never, I know, you just go and buy the punnets and usually they're like, oh, they're really expensive this, like at this time of year or, oh, they're, they're all right now. I'm going to buy them. I don't, you know, some arbitrary line in the sand in your head about what you will and won't pay for a punnet of blueberries. Like, my goodness. So I, yeah, the first thing I learned when we got to the farm is that blueberries are on these bushes. So would you, is that, oh my God, says me with the, um, with the ag science degree, that's obviously a perennial then. <laughs> yeah, so they're um, permanently in the ground until, you know, you know whether they're, you know, you, we'll, we'll start replacing some of the blocks either because of um, uh, disease or uh, not not um, not producing as much uh, or just to keep us sustainable so that we can keep producing blueberries over and over again. 
So um, that's the first port of call where it's similar to cattle production. The, yeah, uh, yeah the old girls, whether they be blueberry culls. bushes or – yeah, you're calling them culls. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like it doesn't matter if you're a cow or a blueberry bush, like you can still be culled. And, I still cull it, yeah. And you get, it's kind of almost like being in Hollywood. You get old and you you just get culled. So Holly- And we've got we've got varieties as well. So you've got different, different um, types of cattle. It's the same – yeah, which can grow in different places of Australia. It's the same with, same with blueberries. You've got varieties that will grow here and varieties that won't. It's the same in the northern, northern Kimberleys and stuff where you, you've got a certain breed of cattle that will thrive in that area, but won't do so well somewhere else. And it's the same sort of thing in, in blueberries as well. Now. Okay, so the blueberry, I guess, I mean, we'll post some pictures, but people can also go Google this. The thing I found fascinating is, can you describe, and I know it's a, it's a audio format, not visual, unfortunately. I mean, I'm guessing there's probably something on YouTube, but describe to me how people harvest blueberries. <laughs> Basically, it's just like tickling little blue balls off a bush, which is why they're so expensive at certain times, uh, because they are hard to find. It's all hand picked. So people will cup their hands sort of underneath, underneath the bunches of, of blueberries on the bush and, um, just, just use their thumbs to flick them off into their hands, and then they put them into a bucket, uh, and then and then they're put into a larger lug, is what we call them. And that's kind of like this crate thing that you've got over here. Yes. So it's kind of like a green yeah. crate that you might see at the markets. You can get like the bigger ones, like kind of like veggie a veggie crate. Yeah, smaller. like a shallow crate. Yeah. 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 So we pack into those, uh, and it gets um, quality quality checked uh, as it as it comes through. Through our, through our sheds, uh, and then it gets, uh, travel, it travels all the way to Brisbane and that's where it gets put into punnets. And the other thing I learned that blueberries are, well, how they are similar to cattle is that they can be temperamental. Um, how does a plant be temperamental? So there are different, so many different types of plants in the world and, you know, some like acidic, acidic environments, some like alkaline environments, some like, you know, cooler and warmer and things like that. Uh, some like wet feet, some like dry feet. Uh, and the blueberry is temperamental in that it doesn't like wet feet, doesn't like dry feet. It does like acidic, uh, soils. Uh, and, and if you feed it too much or too little nitrogen, it'll make the berries go bitter or, you know, it, it, it can affect the flavor, uh, quite dramatically if, if you get that recipe wrong. How long does it take to grow a blueberry? Like what is the blueberry life cycle? So we we take cuttings from our existing blueberries. So we call it's called propagation. So you take uh, a long stem from from one of our existing ones, and you chop it up, uh, and uh, you've got a special mix that we put that into, and we put that into greenhouses, and that's how you get that variety. So that variety will be replicated uh, over and over that way because if you grow it by seed you have got too many variations and they're very complicated uh in in their genetics in that it's quite difficult to explain briefly but i liken it to you have a giraffe and a giraffe uh come and do their thing but you'll end up with a a hippo and a and a mongoose and uh all sorts of different things will come out of those two things uh, so they're not, they're not always, you've got so, so much variety in the genetics that you can't replicate that same variety unless it's from a cutting. 
so then uh, after you've taken that cutting, uh, you put it in the right environment into into the greenhouse, and it can be it can be quite quick, you know, twelve weeks or so before you can um, it can get some roots and then you're able to plant it. So you plant that in the first year and that's we get them from a nursery. So we don't do that here but we get the nursery to do that. Uh and then we bring them back to the farm and we plant them out into our into our field and we can get fruit in that following year. So if we plant in spring or winter, say this year, at this time, we'll get fruit off that next year. And so how but how often do you do you like pick them and then you gotta wait a year before we pick them again? Like how do you so after that, uh, they will produce, it depends on the variety, but the, um, the, they will produce all the time. So we've got one variety that just does berries all year round. And if, if we let them, that we would, they would be picking all year round. Uh, but we've got bush maintenance to do. So we've got to prune them, uh, to make sure that we get nice fresh growth and good berries from them. Uh, and they don't get too big. So you can't pick it as well. So they can get, you know, up to three meters tall. Um, and we hedge that. Um, every year and set the bush up to make it easy to pick and, uh, and yeah, and to, just to maintain the health of, of the plant. So the more you cut them back, uh, the, the better they do in generally speaking. Now you always thought you were going to work with cattle. Um, and I think going from cattle to plants is, and you know, first, you know, your crops and then blueberries is pretty different. Um, but, I also learnt the other day that there are quite a few creatures that you still do get to interact with regularly in your job, like spiders and snakes <laughs> and bees. So tell me a bit about that. Well, spiders and spiders and snakes are a fact of life. Like it doesn't matter where you are, whether oh, it you're in the city like, or not. <laughs> no, it was like raining spiders the other day as we're driving around in this buggy, guys. There's was more spiders in the under the blueberry nets than there were. <laughs> anywhere else in this town just saying so it, it the spiders actually they they serve a purpose for us they're 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 quite beneficial um to a lot of pests and and they do keep things things at bay uh it it also keeps pickers at bay as well i think we had the record was uh, about 10 minutes we had a lovely a lovely european girl that uh was petrified of spiders and and she lasted 10 minutes trying to pick and she left <laughs> Sally, I thought you weren't going to tell anyone about my time at the Blueberry Farm. <laughs> You're European, eh? Yes. Um, yeah, so distantly. Yeah, and we get all the different types of snakes, and and where we we make sure that um, we're all got our uh, all our supervisors and and managers and have got the first aid and know how to respond to that sort of thing. And uh, everybody's inducted into the risks that they that they're there. And you get tree snakes, you get brown snakes, red belly black snakes. You get great big pythons, which I love. And you know they they all live under the net. And and the bees, of course. And the bees are quite important for us. Um, we they're actually you know they're they're classed as livestock. So the biggest livestock movement in Australia is actually bees for the pollination of almonds down down south uh, in Victoria and New South Wales. So. They will move millions of boxes of bees of hives down down there, and it is it is classed as the biggest livestock movement in Australia. So, regardless of all the livestock that goes, you know, cattle wise, um, they are classed in that way. So, we don't have nearly as many as what they do in in almonds, uh, and we we do target targeted pollination. Uh, so that we've got different things that we can encourage the bees to 
come into the farm. So we hire hives for a start and uh, we we get them from a guy down at the Gold Coast and he is a pollinator. So he does honey as well um, and that's most of his business, but he's also got enough hives to literally move up and down the East Coast because you can't go you can't go west. <laughs> yeah, we have <laughs> for a pretty, security stuff. pretty strict borders yes. before COVID, yep. Uh, even before COVID, yes. Um, and... Yeah, so all, all all up and down the east coast, he travels with his bees as far north as the table Atherton up there, uh, and and sunflowers and things up there, and he'll go down to Victoria and on the on the river down there and and do all the almonds down there as well, and he's a really important part that business relationship as well as as personal as well. Um, you know, we've 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 become really good friends in 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 how we do better at what we do and what he does in in pollination wise uh and how it works best for us on the farm i think that was probably one the biggest eye opener for me the other day was realizing that when you go to buy a pun of blueberries you don't realize the danger that someone has gone to first of all the amount of work but the danger someone has gone through to get you that pun of blueberries they have been Going in amongst spiders, snakes, bees, you know, all that you think going out working on a station makes you tough and, oh, yeah, I'm catching scrub bulls, whatever. You want to see these pickers, like, going through literally just infestations of spiders. Okay, it's not that bad. I might be being a little bit dramatic. but I think you're being dramatic. Yeah. Just me. I've never been dramatic. What are you talking about? Nobody would ever say that about me. But I think that's an interesting um, comparison to make that, you know, you think, oh, well, fruit, you know, fruit production, that's not very – Dangerous. Yeah, you know, yeah, whatever, you know. It's not you don't have to be very tough to do that, not like being up on a station. But um yeah, that does make well, yeah. I don't know, I just never thought about it like that. So Yeah, it doesn't matter what you do in agriculture, there's always some sort of some sort of risk. Yeah. So you've made the move the move from uh oh, get it, you've made the move. <laughs> God, somebody get me a drink? Yeah. yeah. I'm like a cordial I need some now. Um so you've made the move, I'm so proud of that, from beef to blueberries, doing a bunch of different things in between. And I suppose the takeaway from that is that you're very adaptable and you just- Very, very adaptable. Oh my gosh, yes. You're very adaptable. <laughs> and I just have this massive like have a go attitude and, you know, just, yeah, have a crack and, and see what happens. So I want to ask you as we wrap up, what do you do to look after yourself, especially living the life that you have and bouncing around all over the place and not necessarily having a lot of stability? How do you stay grounded and how do you look after yourself? Well, I've always been a pretty sporty person. Uh, whenever, wherever I've gone, I've, I've joined netball. So, you know, I was in netball or hockey in Dalwillanew, moved to Durian for a little bit and played netball again, moved to Broome, Played netball again, uh, and I've come over here and played netball. And and ever since ever since we've been over here, actually, because um, I'm a bit of a golfer as well, we play golf. So it's golf and netball is pretty much pretty much uh, my two go to things uh, to keep me you know fit and fit and happy. Uh, but you know, my husband is a really 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 good advocate for uh, keeping me grounded too. I guess because you know he's he's very supportive, like. Very supportive. He's very clever. He can, he's also adaptable. Uh, and these two kids keep me on my toes as well. <laughs> I think, I think that's, uh, that doesn't, 
that doesn't keep me grounded, actually. They send me insane sometimes. <laughs> send you sky high. Love you long time. <laughs> <laughs> They're sitting right next to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and school holidays too, so yay. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what, that's what, uh, keeps me happy is, is playing sport and, um, and keeping fit in that way. And to finish up, looking back on your life so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? Uh, I suppose there's so many different facets of, of what I've gone through and, and, um, experienced in my life. And, you know, for sure, dad's the biggest influence on, on my work ethic and how, and how we, uh, or how I, you know, am so adaptable in those situations. But then you've got Bardo who, who taught me about communication. And then you've got, um, you know, other influential people, um, who, who have made such an impact on, on how I conduct myself, uh, as, as a leader to these people here. You know, we've got up to 500 people, uh, during the season. And, you know, I've got to be able to communicate who, who, or don't speak English, who, um, I've got to be able to communicate to these people on what it is we need to, or what we get to achieve for the day. And there are so many different facets within, within that, um, within that area that, that you've got to try and, uh, make sure that you're very clear and, and understanding of, of people and, and how they react to, to situations and understanding that there are so many different, uh, personalities in the world that it's not just about you and, and how you react. Um, but how you react to other people's reactions is, is a huge learning curve for what I've had to do, um, in, in the last four years that I've been here. Um, and there are people who have influenced that heaps over the years and, you know, influential women, for example, that Catherine and Elizabeth Brennan made, you know, they, they came and spoke to the Libby group when I was working in Dalwellany and they had a massive influence on, on, on how you conduct yourself and how, how you can do what you want to do and, and be what you want to be and, and be adaptable in what, in what you have, um, laying ahead of you and you try and teach that to these guys to be able to be independent and I'm pointing to my kids here um to be independent and you know they're six and eight years old um and to be able to adapt in life um and to become what they want to do and do what they want to do uh that's been really influential so there are a lot of things that that can drive a person to to you know, to be the outcome that you can be. But, um, you know, the take-home messages are uh, do do what makes you happy, find a passion and you'll never have to work. Uh, and that's how I'm feeling. Excuse me. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm good. I can start that bit again. Yeah, so having all these influences in my life and and having those people who are able to give you that opportunity to be able to to for lack of a better phrase better phrase you know spread your wings and and do what um, makes you happy instead of being told what to do all the time gives you gives you the the confidence and uh, and the you know the ability to go and you know do whatever you want to do be that adaptable person uh, and go from beef and bees and blueberries and and just choose what you want to do. Like 
it really, really doesn't matter what you do as long as you love doing it. Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end agricultural industry while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and or agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and they service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au, and we're also on Twitter at centralstation6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.